and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. This week, we branch out away from Louisville and venture out into the state to the Appalachian Mountains of Eastern Kentucky, where our guest this week resides. Bobby Kahn is a technical writer by day, an author whose first book, In the Shadow of the Valley, was published this past May by Little A Publishing, the literary imprint for Amazon. Her memoir of growing up in a holler on the outskirts of Moorhead, Kentucky, conveys a tension between the beauty of the landscape in contrast to her family's poverty, her father's drug addiction, and his abuse of Bobby, her brother, and their mother. The memoir is Bobby's attempt to have some control over her own life story. In fact, she never strived to be a memoirist. Her true literary love lies more with poetry and short stories. But something powerful inside her needed to be released, and her journey to write it as her creative writing thesis in graduate school to 12 years later publishing it and also narrating the audiobook version of that story is what we will talk about today. Bobby discusses why she thinks magical realism is a great way to tell stories set in Appalachia, why the term holler has such significance among the people who live in this region, why her granny's house is a metaphor for her life's journey, and what stories she finds in the classic country music she listened to on the radio as a kid. Amy, we've kind of been on a bit of a Appalachia kick lately. We've read or interviewed people from the region who have written books, and we would like to introduce Bobby Kahn. She is an author. Her debut memoir is In the Shadow of the Valley, and it is about her childhood and experiences as a person who grew up in Appalachia. She's also a technical writer by day, so she doesn't really get a break from writing ever, which for her, she'd probably say is a good thing. So Bobby, thank you for being here. Oh, thank you all for having me. I know that Appalachian literature and Appalachian general has a soft spot in my heart. My family is from there. And actually, I lived for several years in the place where you grew up, Bobby. I lived in Moorhead, Kentucky. So I was very excited to talk to you about your new book. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write the book? Well, I grew up in a holler in eastern Kentucky lived in the holler until I was 12 and then moved to town with my mom and brother. I went to college, unlike the rest of my family, and I moved away. I went to Berea, so still in Appalachia. And I really developed a love for writing while I was still in middle school, and I enjoyed creative and academic writing in college. And I didn't really see a way to make that a, a significant part of my career but I ended up, after working for a few years, I went to grad school, and the need to write was just so pressing, and I couldn't ignore it any longer. So I decided to get a master's in English at Eastern Kentucky University, 
And uh, that's where I wrote the first iteration of this memoir. It was my creative writing thesis. And at the time it, it had poems woven in with the prose, which I said as part of my creative writing thesis that I wanted to play with blurred genres and even invent a form. So that was a lot of fun, but eventually I really sat down and transformed that into a book rather than this kind of experiment with words that I got to indulge in. Can you give our readers just a little bit of a synopsis of your memoir? It starts out being about growing up in eastern Kentucky in the holler where I came from. I grew up surrounded by the beauty of Appalachia. And also I was surrounded with a lot of the the difficulties and challenges that face Appalachia, some of the issues being poverty and substance abuse. Of course, substance abuse and then physical abuse and other kinds of social problems are not just specific to Appalachia, but it is something that the region uh, grapples with as part of our identity. And I think it's, it's a significant portion of the identity that the rest of the country sees in Appalachia. I wrote about growing up there, experiencing these things, both the beauty and the challenges, and then how my set of experiences uh, shaped my thinking and my decision-making as I grew older. And I really experienced this push and pull between the beauty and the pain that I was surrounded by. My mother-in-law is from Pikeville. So she grew up there and her dad grew up there. And a number of years ago, before my husband's grandfather died, we went to Pikeville to the family homestead. And I'm so glad I went because, you know, my mother-in-law had described a holler and how the mountain was like her backyard. And I grew up in Louisville, so I couldn't imagine what this looked like. So I was so glad when I went because I was able to see the beauty of the place. And your first couple chapters, the description of being able to go into the mountains and all the the trees and the creeks, it just really took me back there. So I love that aspect of the memoir. Thank you. I'm glad that I could accomplish that for at least some of the readers. Well, I was wondering if you'd actually read the very first paragraph of your prologue because you talk about a holler and I'd love to hear you read it. Oh sure. Life was different in our holler I came to learn and we were definitely living in a holler not a hollow like you might read about in the dictionary or see on a fancy map. Merriam-Webster's will tell you it's a small valley or basin. The dictionary can also tell you it's a depressed or low part of a surface and unfilled space. But what it can't tell you is what that means, where the depression becomes visible in the land, what is inhabiting all that unfilled space. Only people who were raised in hollers can do that. So I really liked that passage. That's the very beginning of the book, and it sort of blew me away. Um, And I was Mm -hmm. wondering if you would just talk a little bit about the significance of the holler in your book, but also in Appalachia as a whole. If you've ever lived in Appalachia or visited it, the holler is a a very visceral thing. Yeah, so I think the holler is just a really potent symbol for Appalachia. One, because it's a a significant element of the landscape 
that you don't see throughout Kentucky. So it really helps mark the boundary where Appalachia ends because of the Appalachian Mountains were formed and the foothills. So you have these hollers that people have been living in for a very long time, for generations. And the beauty of them is just incomparable. You know, you usually have a stream up in the holler. The forest just dominates the landscape and the feeling in the holler. And at the same time, as it provides all this beauty, the landscape has also been it's a significant reason why a lot of things aren't as accessible to the, the people in this region. It's hard to build roads that traverse through hollers. There's been a lot of cutting through mountains in order to build highways and that sort of thing, but that's expensive and difficult to do. It's difficult to create a transportation network with continuity, and it's really easy to get goods and services through the region. And then it's expensive to do things like run city water up into hollers and to get sewage service and to get internet access. The remoteness and the physical barriers interact now in ways that continue to keep the area just really challenged from a socioeconomic perspective. One of the things my mother-in-law talked about her family, they moved to Louisville when she was about 13. When we went to visit where she had grown up, her father built the house that she lived in as a child right across the road from his parents. Mm -hmm. And his grandmother had lived down the road. And your story parallels that in terms of family. I, I don't know this, so I'm asking you as our, for the moment, resident Appalachian expert. Is that pretty typical for families to all live within the same holler? Is that pretty typical from your experience? Yeah, definitely. A lot of people are able to have pieces of land that stay in the family. And so you'll see people will put trailers on the land so that their adult children have a place to live. Or they might even build another house on the same parcel as uh, family members. And sometimes it doesn't matter how big the piece of land is. You might have uh, quite a few people all there together because that's an easy way to provide for one of the necessary aspects of life, you know, having shelter for people that often don't have a lot of resources to go out on their own or to meet other needs quite as easily it's kind of one of those things that can be beneficial that you're close to family. You've got that network that's right there, but it can also be detrimental depending on what your family life is like. I, I think that too is an interesting tension and dynamic that probably affects a lot of different families. Right. When you have housing security, but then you may be dealing with dysfunction in the family it can be really difficult to figure out what's best to give up there. You have some semblance of stability and security versus family dynamics that might be really destructive or keep you from becoming your best self or branching out. So it feels like you make a distinction in your book between being poor and poverty. 
And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a bit. Yeah, I wanted to explore in my memoir the relationship between financial poverty and then poverty of the mind or poverty of the spirit. So, you know, I think there's a specific passage that you might be thinking of where I claim there's a difference between being poor and then the poverty that we lived in. I've just spent a lot of time thinking about how not having a lot of money is not necessarily the same thing as the kind of poverty I experienced. Um, Some people don't have a lot of money and they make do and they still have stable families and stable home lives and loving lives. But that wasn't the case where I grew up. So I really wanted to think more about what it's like to have these different like poverty of the mind entwined with physical poverty and financial poverty. You know, I think that's a complication that I, I certainly didn't learn about as a child. So I've, I've tried to go back and make sense of it as an adult. And I definitely don't think that's just a rural issue. I mean, I think you, know, right. you can have that anywhere. That's a universal issue. I think that's really important too, because there's a lot more in common between these different cultures in our country than maybe we always realize and think about and talk about. So I was hoping to draw attention to some of these things where there is a a universal connection. We could be thinking about things in a more mature fashion than dismissing cultures as we so often do. For you, what was it like to write a memoir where many of the people in your family that you write about are still living and that some of those family members contributed to painful experiences that you had? Tell us about that and your process for dealing with that. So, you know, I wrote a lot of this before it was picked up for publication. And at that point, it was a lot easier to write everything (laughs) because the idea of it going out into the world was so abstract. But then once it got picked up for publication and we started going through the editing process, you know, I would read things and work on passages and think, oh my gosh, like everybody's going to hate me. And I grew up with the unwritten rule that you don't air your dirty laundry in public. And I think as a woman and as someone who experienced abuse as a child, I also learned that we don't publicly out abusers. That's a very difficult thing to do, a very challenging thing to do. And it's an unfortunate byproduct of abuse. So I was really worried that the relationships that I do have with my family members would be negatively impacted. But in the end, I decided my duty is to tell the truth as I see it. And I wanted to share my story because I think it can help other people. And I knew that in order to accomplish that goal, I had to be really honest about myself and my life. Ultimately, I hope that none of my family members or anyone really would read this and think that I wrote it to cast them in a negative light or to talk badly about them. I think hopefully it's very clear that that's not my goal in any way. 
And I've actually gotten a lot of positive feedback from family members, both in my immediate family and extended family members. It's been a really uplifting experience to get that feedback from them and (laughs) very surprising as well because I was certainly expecting the worst. Did it also feel like a little bit of your own kind of therapy to write it, writing down your story and getting it out? So I think the thing that made the biggest difference for me was not just getting it out, but, you know, it went through various drafts and each time I really looked for places where I might be exuding self-pity and I worked on rewriting that particularly because I one don't think that self-pity is a very interesting topic for readers and not the kind of story that people would want to immerse themselves in. But also I felt like that helped me change my relationship with my story and to really claim the role of the storyteller. And I think that that translated into real agency in my own life as I decided this is my story and I'm the one who gets to tell it. And if I want to be vulnerable, I'll be vulnerable. And if I want to share something that looks ugly, you know, that's what I'm going to do. And I have a right to do that. And so that I believe was a really transformational aspect of this and probably getting it out in the first place was therapeutic. But I I do think that that like really working through the material and thinking about what I wanted to tell the world and what I wanted to tell myself about my story was the most beneficial aspect of it. From the time you said you started this as part of your dissertation, what was the time length between when you first initially started writing it and when it was published? So I graduated from the master's program in December of 2007. And now, of course, it got published officially May of 2020. So that's a long time. uh, 12 and a half (laughs) years. Yeah. And I, I spent a lot of that time thinking about it with it sitting on the shelf, I would go through spurts where I would query agents, but really the decade of my thirties was pretty challenging. I would try occasionally to put it out there, but it wasn't until like 2016, I think that, you know, I really started to to get some traction with the publication process. So You got this published through one of Amazon's literary fiction imprints called Little A. And I think, myself included, people think Amazon only does Mm -hmm. self-publishing, but they also have several of their own publishing imprints. And so I'm wondering, how did you navigate that journey to getting your book published and into the hands of Little A? There was a conference at the Carnegie Center in Lexington If you attended the conference, you could also pay an extra, I think, $25 to meet with an agent in person. And then you could pitch your book. You got like 10 or 15 minutes. And I thought, if I could just get in front of somebody and talk to them, I think I could have a chance. I did that. I went to the conference. I met with this agent. And after working on my manuscript a little bit, I had to take the poems out and I needed to clean up the timeline a bit for her. When I got it to a place that she was comfortable with, she signed me with them. And then we worked on a proposal. 
but the timing didn't work out that first time. Hillbilly Elegy had just come out Mm. and a lot of publishers seeing just some sample chapters of my manuscript, they weren't certain that I was going to present a unique story. Everyone saw it in light of Hillbilly Elegy. So instead of just sending out more material, I decided to sit back down with my manuscript and work through it again and to tighten it up and to clarify the purpose for myself and to to think again about, you know, my identity and how that fits into a larger national conversation about Appalachia. With the next proposal, it was picked up pretty quickly by Little A. So does Little A work like any other publishing company? Yeah, they are a, a publishing company in their own right. There's a literary fiction imprint, and Amazon does have a couple of other imprints, but they publish other genres. When you mentioned Hillbilly Elegy, so I have read that book, and then I read Hill Women by Mm -hmm. Cassie Chambers. We had had her as a guest on the show, and then reading yours, and having those three stories in my mind, I at least think about in terms of where you're getting news and where you're getting information, you should triangulate, you know, that it's a good idea to have multiple sources to give you a fuller picture of any experience. And so I've been thinking a lot of that in terms of those three books. And really, those are three, but there's a multitude of other potential stories. I feel like people, when they think about rural versus urban and and the different kinds of experiences we're probably all guilty of hearing one story and thinking, well, we heard that one story, therefore we know the full picture. And I think it's important to remember that there's lots of different stories. There's the stories that we have available to us, like yours, but there's also other stories that we haven't heard that would give us an even fuller picture of what any given experience is like. Did you read a lot of memoir? Was that a genre that you liked? No, actually, I believe that Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes may have been the first memoir I read. I'd, I'd read a lot of creative nonfiction and certainly biography and that sort of thing. But it it wasn't something that I was particularly interested in. And when I went to grad school, I didn't plan to write about myself. I actually wanted to study poetry. And then while I was there, I fell in love with the short story form. But I've come to love the memoir genre. That's really great that that was the first memoir that you read, because I can see so many similarities between your book and... Angela's Ashes. Just the situation in both of them is similar, but one is halfway across the world, you know, in Ireland and and yours is is here in Appalachia. So uh, I hadn't thought about it until you said it, but it makes complete sense. When I read that, I found myself one day reading a passage and thinking, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Like what a terrible life. And I can't put it down. And I thought, how did he do that? Like, how did he make me want to stay with him for this really ugly experience? And then I I wondered, how on earth did he turn out to be someone who could write something so beautiful when he came from such a horrific childhood? And I, I realized that's a story in and of itself. 
the fact that some people can transcend, you know, what seems like it should be their fate and that they can render something ugly into something so beautiful. I was just awestruck at that point. So what kind of things did you read when you were a kid? You you said you wanted to write from middle school age. What kind of things inspired you? I read everything I could get my hands on. I was definitely a bookworm as a kid. You know, I was reading the Babysitter's Club and stuff like yeah. that. But then uh, my grandma on my mom's side, she would also give me her Reader's Digest condensed books. So when I was, I don't know, nine or 10, I was reading the condensed version of The Stepford Wives. <laughs> um, yeah, that left an impression. <laughs> We would go to my grandma's house, get into the newspaper and read the comics. And she'd let me read her star magazine. So I was reading tabloids as a (laughs) young child. Really, I was reading everything I could find. In middle school, what inspired me was reading the Odyssey, a language arts class. And that's when we were assigned to write this story. You know, it was probably like a two-page assignment or something. And then I wrote like eight or nine pages and I fell in love with this story and couldn't stop. And my teacher really loved it. Who knows if she really loved it, but she (laughs) was very encouraging. She gave me great feedback and was very kind about it. So it was then that I realized not only could I immerse myself in other worlds by reading, but I could create other worlds that I could immerse myself in by being a writer You wrote a piece for Salon.com recently titled Mercy and Grace, Reclaiming the Family Home Lost to My Father's Addiction. And in that piece, you write about buying your grandparents' home in the holler from your father. And, And this was the home that was a place of solace for you growing up. And you fixed it up from the state that your father had left it. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about that piece and if there's a metaphor in there for your own personal journey. Yeah, I definitely think so. I tend to see the world in metaphor, all of life being rich with metaphor. So I like the way you phrased that. I've thought about this a lot because when I bought the house and the land of my grandparents' property, I bought it from my father, you know, I didn't have a clear goal for it. Played around with the idea of moving up there and living there myself. And it's really just still such a special place that thought crosses my mind at least once a week. And then I thought, you know, I I could rent it out. I could make a writer's retreat. There were lots of different ideas that came to mind, but I didn't have a clear goal for it. And as I was working out there and cleaning up things, I realized that really all I wanted to do was to honor my grandparents by cleaning up the mess that had been made of their legacy because they worked really hard to build that place. And I think they put a lot of emotional energy into creating a home where so many of us grandchildren especially felt so loved and safe. And I felt like the best thing that I could do to honor them was to restore it back to a state in which you could feel the peace and the comfort that really pervades the home. I still don't know what the outcome will be. 
it's really interesting to me because, you know, I want to make smart choices and on paper that might not be a smart choice, but I realized too that I don't have to know the outcome. It's okay for me to just trust that, you know, if I'm inspired to do something that feels meaningful and that feels important, there's a really good chance that something good is going to come of it. And I can't always see what that's going to be. And I certainly can't control it. You know, it's an act of faith for me, which I think is so fitting given my granny's and Pepwell's mm-hmm. faith, their religious faith. So is the house in a state where you're happy with it or are you still working on it? At this point now, I'm going to be working on the structural things that need to be done just to shore it up. You know, so I'm getting some expert opinions on just what it takes to ensure that it continues to stand. It's really solid. And from there, I'm going to start improving things, but also maintaining the historic integrity as much as possible. I like what you said, that the the bones of it are solid. And that makes me think of, in your book, when you're writing about your grandparents, they were solid. Sometimes the things around it might have crumbled, but they were still solid. So you also narrate the audiobook version of your book, and I don't think that we have talked to an author yet who has done that. Tell us a little bit about that process. Well, so first I had to audition to narrate the audiobook, you know, which was interesting and really challenging. I realized when I listened to my first several recordings of myself that when you just read something out loud, it's typically not telling a story in the same way that we would naturally tell a story. So I had to really work to give it life and bring energy to it for that recording, which felt very strange trying to figure out how to make myself sound like a narrator. As soon as I found out that they decided to let me narrate it, I had a moment of happiness. And then I realized this means not only have I written this whole story, that I'm putting out there for the world to read themselves. But now I'm going to narrate the story to the world. And I thought, what was I thinking? (laughs) Like, like, do I really want to spend all that time speaking it aloud? And I realized it was going to once again change my relationship with my story and I guess force me to own it in a way that I wouldn't have otherwise. And that was the emotional background as I went into the actual recording. You know, at first I was really intimidated because the audio engineer and the director of the narrating process, they were both men. And I was immediately worried that they might judge me for things in my book. And I felt pretty vulnerable, but it turned out that not only were they really great at their work and made it a a very comfortable process, But I lucked out and got really kind people to work with, and they were just so supportive. It was interesting to have that be my first experience of being vulnerable with people, like an outside audience, like a a public audience to some extent. There were moments, of course, during reading where I got choked up or I really dreaded getting to a specific passage. And I think that working through that was a really good thing for me. You know, it allowed me to face 
the material and to face the story one last time. So I've seen on social media that you have a playlist that readers can check out that correlates with your book. And I wanted you to talk to us a little bit about why you wanted to do that and what you think music adds to the reading experience. Yeah, that was a really fun project for me. I have always loved music and I I think it's because music, it helps us connect to our emotions in a way that other things don't. Music was one of the few forms of entertainment that we had growing up because television didn't reach us very well. But there was always a radio station. There was one radio station we could listen to. So I grew up listening to songs and just imagining these lives and stories and, you know, these characters that are depicted in the songs. And I feel like there's a playlist for every phase of my life. When I got to work on the playlist, at first I thought, well, I'll just pull songs from the book. And then I realized I don't even like all the songs I mentioned in my book. (laughs) So I listened to songs and thought very carefully about how the song makes me feel or how it relates to something I was feeling in my memoir. And, you know, and also messages in some of these songs that and meaningful and that have really brought me hope and they uplifted me at times as I think music has done for a lot of people. And I also realized as I was doing this that a lot of the songs I heard as a kid, which were, you know, classic country, like Bernard Holler, George Jones and Marty Robbins and Lefty Frizzell and there's so many stories being told in those songs. And I think now Like that storytelling aspect has just always appealed to me. And I thought more carefully as I was working on the playlist about like, who is the narrator of the story? Are they a reliable narrator? You know, how are they characterizing the other characters in this song? And so it turned into just a a really fascinating and fulfilling experience. And I hope that what I wrote about each of the songs helps people who choose to listen to the songs and read my descriptions, they might be able to see how that relates to my own writing. If someone wanted to look at that playlist, where could they find it? Um, It's on the Large Hearted Boy website. Um, I have a link that goes directly to my playlist on my website, which is bobbycon.com. You mentioned Marty Robbins, and that's who my dad listened to when I was a kid. So now oh. I've got a Marty Robbins song going through my head. Yeah. So in terms of the future, are you working on something new now? So I, I actually have started on a novel that will explore the lives of a family in eastern Kentucky, crossing multiple generations. As I was writing my memoir, I've thought a lot about my great-grandparents, who I mentioned. My great-grandfather was a moonshiner, and I thought that I wanted to delve into some research about his life. He was in and out of prison. When I was growing up, my dad had a newspaper clipping, and he told me it was a picture of my great-grandfather and Al Capone in prison together, and they were standing with their arms around each other in their boxer shorts. My dad told me so many stories about him. And one day it hit me, though, that 
the person whose stories I don't know is my great-grandmother's. And she would have been the one who was married to this man in and out of prison who he was selling moonshine in Chicago. He murdered her father. And I realized like her story, like that's the voice that hasn't been heard. Great-grandmother's story has to be just so rich. But rather than just sit down and try to write out their stories, I thought I want to explore their lives and the generations before them and then look at the, how those lives and those experiences and choices shaped the generations to come. And I really love magical realism. Mm. I think that that is a very fitting writing style for work in Appalachia and for my own life. So I want to bring that into this story. That's the main project that I want to work on. But I also do want to work on some short stories too, because I think the short story is just such a powerful genre. And it's, you know, not something that is as widely read and maybe celebrated right now. But I I think it's really special what you can do in a short story. I just have to ask you why you think that magical realism is a perfect way to tell stories about Appalachia. I find that intriguing. For one, the way that folk medicine and religion and the relationship with the land in Appalachia have intertwined, there's a lot that I think on the surface, like to the outsider, would look like not magic necessarily, but folk magic or it's it's folk medicine. If you research about folk medicine in Appalachia, you find that typically a healing woman would have said prayers or sang a song or something uh, while they were administering herbs or putting a poultice on someone's skin. And traditionally, there was no differentiation between what God was doing or what the plants were doing or what the healer herself was doing. And now I'm painting this in broad strokes, you know, right. based on my own research. But that's how I grew up perceiving the world, you know, going to church where when you sit on the front pew and the men come at the end of the sermon and lay their hands on you and everybody prays at once and they think that God is working through those prayers and the laying on of hands. You know, I think that's just a very, very short step from there to magical realism. Mm -hmm. As a kid growing up, running around in that landscape, to me, the whole place just felt imbued with magic. And of course, as a child, I didn't think it was magic. It's just looking back at it now. There were so many hidden treasures. There was so much beauty, so many moments of grace. Even thinking about dangerous situations that I survived, it's really hard not to believe that there was some sort of guiding force or a protective force around me. I think there's a lot to mine. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That sounds fascinating. Well, I feel like we could talk to you about this all day, Bobby, but we are going to take a break now. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. I am definitely interested in what you're reading. 
I did read a book of poetry this week. I had never heard of this poet. His name is Jericho Brown, but he won a Pulitzer Prize for his book, The Tradition. So I thought, you know what? I like to stay up to date on when people win big prizes. And especially if I'm like, who is that? I've never heard of that person. I feel like I need to find some stuff out about them. Sometimes I find poetry difficult because I feel like I'll read a poem and there's some that I get immediately and I feel like I know what's going on and there's other poems. I'm not sure I get this. And I don't feel like that's an uncommon experience for people because it's one of those things. I think if you're a person who loves poetry, you'll probably get a lot out of it. If you're a person who's like me, who's struggles a little bit with poetry. I mean, some of his poems are pretty dense. There's one of the poems, I think it's the first poem in the book. It's called Ganymede. And I mean, I know some things about Greek mythology, but I don't know everything about Greek mythology. So it forced me to have to look up who Ganymede was so that I could understand the reference and what he was talking about in the poem. If you're the type of person who Dr. Seuss is your level of poetry, then Jericho Brown's poems are going to be pretty hard to understand. The good thing about this, though, about exploring a writer that I've never heard about, I don't know anything about, is then I sort of go down a bit of a rabbit hole because then I start looking up everything about that person because I feel like I want to understand. I don't like that sensation of feeling like I don't know what's going on or I didn't really get it. So I actually started Googling Jericho Brown's poetry and I found some other poems that aren't in that book, The Tradition, that I feel like I do connect with in a different way. Poetry it tries to put a lot of context and thought and emotion into a very small container and I think what that requires then sometimes is that you have to do more work to parse those things out. If you have context for the symbols and the allusions, then you're going to have an understanding. And if you don't have context for those things, in order to fully appreciate and understand them, you've got to do some work. I went through a phase where I was reading everything that Ogden Nash had written. And if you've read Ogden Nash, you know that those are just funny, goofy poems. Uh, so that is <laughs> your speed. That's my speed. That has traditionally been my jam. And Jericho <laughs> Brown is like deep stuff. So, <laughs> so Bobby, what have you been reading? One of my favorite books that I've read here recently is T. Bowie's memoir, The Best We Could Do. So it's an illustrated memoir. She's the illustrator. And her family, her parents left Vietnam in the 70s. And so she's like a first generation American dealing with the experience of her parents who are still deeply rooted in their home culture and she, she describes what it's like to negotiate their values and that native culture versus the, the culture that surrounds her now as a child. And I thought she did a really great job of talking about the circumstances 
that her parents fled and you know what it was like to go back and visit the home country and I feel like I learned a lot about a piece of history that I didn't know anything about before and I also thought that her message it's a really interesting experience that I think a lot of us can relate to which is belonging in two places at once and therefore not fully belonging anywhere even though my family has been in the U.S. for a long time. I feel like I can relate to her because I also had this sense of not really belonging with the outside world, not really belonging with my family, and therefore being on the short end of the stick in two different places. I think her story is just, it covers a lot of bases and it's beautifully told. And because it's illustrated, she conveys a lot more through her dialogue and through the shorter narration than what you would get with a you know traditional book that's just prose. It's just a really interesting and fulfilling read so, and beautiful. You know, her illustrations are incredible. Does it have that graphic novel feel or look to it? Yeah, yeah, okay. definitely. It's very accessible in that way. You know, and that's not something that I read a lot of, like graphic novels, but hers just pulled me in really quickly. And I'm not an expert in the, the field or anything, but it seems to me like what she did was a real sophisticated use of the form. This sounds like it's totally your jam, Carrie. Bobby, as soon as you said <laughs> illustrated memoir, I was like looking it up on my phone and added it to my Goodreads list. So <laughs> yeah, you'll have to tell me what you think. Cause yeah. I, I, so impressed. Well, Amy, what have you had going on over there across town? <laughs> I just finished a book yesterday called Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. And this was published this past December. And this was such a surprise to me. This is a great quirky book. It's funny. And yet it also delves into some important topics. So the premise of the story is that there's a senator from the state of Tennessee who has two children, a set of twins from his first marriage, and they have to come live with him after their mother dies. His second wife, Madison, asks her best friend from childhood, Lillian, to come be their governess because the senator is being vetted for a possible nomination for the post of Secretary of State. Now, the catch is that these children are a little bit different than your average child. And the thing that makes them different is that they literally will burst into flames if they become afraid or angry. So it's like spontaneous combustion, except that the children are not harmed when it happens. Now, that doesn't mean that they couldn't burn down the house or it couldn't hurt somebody else, but it doesn't hurt them. So this story is written from Lillian's point of view. And Lillian and Madison have a complicated past, and they're unlikely friends. They were roommates for a time at a prestigious boarding school. And Lillian was accepted for her exceptional test scores, and she was a scholarship recipient. While Madison can't afford to be there. She comes from a family who is wealthy. But Madison is the one who makes poor choices, and she's caught with drugs, and she's going to be expelled from the school. So what her father does is he offers to pay Lillian's mother $10,000 to have Lillian say it was in fact she who had drugs. So Lillian's then expelled and goes on to become a grocery clerk until she gets a letter from Madison asking for her help with the fire twins. 
So while the premise of this may seem fantastical, there's a lot of underlying themes that are a lot more relatable. What does it mean to be a parent? And does wealth give you a leg up on having or being a good parent? Lillian comes from a poor background with a single mom who doesn't really care if she exists. And Madison comes from a wealthy family, but her family only seems to care for her in the way that she can advance the family's image. But Lillian, who really has no experience with kids, comes to feel strongly that someone needs to truly care for the Fire Twins the way her own mother never did for her. So I listened to this book on audio, and it is the fastest I have ever gone through an audiobook. It was fantastic. It won an Audio Awards this year's for 2020 for Best Female Narrator, and the narrator's name was Marin Ireland, and I'm definitely going to go and look up what other books that she has narrated. I read a little bit about the author, and he was raised, and he still lives in Tennessee, and this is his third novel. He has several collections of short stories. And I think he's known for writing humorous, quirky fiction that has some depth to it. I recently read an interview with him where he talks about being diagnosed with Tourette's syndrome as an adult. And usually you think of people with Tourette's having tics or blurting out profanities. His is a little different form where his is internal. So he has these bursts of violent or disturbing images in his head. And he's had them since he was a child, and they left him feeling anxious. And he said that writing helps him through those intrusive thoughts because he can put them down on the page. So he said he would have these bursts of thoughts of children catching on fire, and that's where he got the idea for his book. So I highly recommend it. It was a a bright spot. Cool. I'm going to have to check that one out. So two more books on my never-ending list of books that I need to read. (laughs) So when we come back, we are going to be asking Bobby her top five. We are back with Bobby Kahn, and we're asking her her top five. So, Bobby, you said that you like to hike and garden. Do you have any top native plants that you especially like to see when you're hiking? I really love finding wild blackberries while I'm out hiking. You know, they tend to grow where there's not tree cover. So when you're getting close to the top of a cliff or you're going through a field, I think Partially because I associate those with the holler where I grew up, always knew where to find the blackberries. And also, I always think like how exciting it is to know, you know, that there's food growing all around us. It gives me a sense of safety and comfort. I think, again, because of childhood, just knowing that I can find something to eat in a pinch. So my mother, who grew up in... Appalachia, but in West Virginia, always talked about going blackberry picking Mm -hmm. with her family as a girl, but she said that she was always scared to do it because oftentimes snakes would hide. They liked the blackberries too. Did you ever have that experience? (laughs) No, we grew up watching out for copperheads constantly, but nobody ever told me the copperheads might be around the blackberries. (laughs) Do you have a top silly word joke? Because we heard that you like to come up with silly word jokes. Yes, it's one of my kids' favorite things about me. I I do love to invent them, but I think this one I read when I was a college student, and it remains my favorite and also my son's favorite. All right, so a string walks into a bar, sits down, and orders a drink. 
bartender looks at him and says, we don't serve strings in here. And the string, he refuses to move and he says, I just want a beer. That's all I want. The bartender says, I told you, we don't serve strings in here. And the string starts to get belligerent and he won't leave. So the bouncer comes and pulls the string out and takes him out back and he roughs him up and he's tying him up and really giving him a hard time. And he leaves him in a pile there behind the bar. A little bit later, String drags himself back in, pulls himself up on a bar stool. He looks at the bartender and says, I'd like a drink. The bartender says, aren't you that string I threw out of here? And he says, no, I'm afraid not. <laughs> you said that one's your son's favorite? <laughs> he used to make fun of it and like groan and roll his eyes. But then one day I heard him tell it and I was like, oh, that's what's going on here. <laughs> you know how good these jokes are. <laughs> You're an alumni of Eastern Kentucky University's creative writing program. Was there a top experience that shaped you as a writer? You know, I was really pleasantly surprised by how challenging that program was and just how like the caliber of, of the professors that I worked with. That was before their MFA program got started. It was a little different than what someone would probably go for now at EKU. But all of my classes, I would say, were really helpful. But I, I have to credit my mentor, Young Smith, for being the, the aspect of being at EKU that ultimately I found the most beneficial. Young is a poet and I took poetry with him, but when it came time to do my creative writing thesis, you know, I asked him to be my chair. I went to him several times and said, is this a good story? I wanted the storytelling to really stand out. I, I went to him over and over and said, you've got to tell me the truth. Like, don't just tell me it's good because you want me to be a, a content student. And I probably gave him a bit of a hard time trying to make sure he was being forthright with me. He told me time and time again that, that the storytelling was good and that it was worthwhile. You know, not just something that would be fulfilling for me alone. That was something that has stood out for me and I still continue to send him notes and thank him randomly for being that person in that program for me. We met some of the faculty members of the MFA program back in November. Louisville Literary Arts had their writing block festival and they sent a couple faculty members yeah, to talk to potential students and things. And I was impressed by them. And I didn't know that Eastern Kentucky had a creative writing program. Yeah, I think it's uh, another hidden gem of Kentucky's right now. So you like to play pool. How did you learn to play? And what is the top trick or helpful tip for someone new to the game? I had a friend in middle school and early high school who had a pool table. And it just so happened that I took geometry class as a freshman in high school. And when we would go to his house and hang out after school sometimes, you know, he wanted to play pool. And I was able to see the angles of the balls and to think about that in terms of geometry. 
because I was you know, mired in geometry class. That's when I first started playing and I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I love math. So I think it was just, it felt like an interesting puzzle to solve. When I play with people who aren't really familiar with it, and, and even for myself, one of the things I constantly do is like try to pay attention to how you can create a different angle and what kind of force will impact that angle. Because it's not just, you know, where does the ball hit the other ball? It's at what speed is it hitting it? It's really just observing cause and effect is, I think, the, the trick, at least for me. And I love, you know, observing those different effects and figuring out how to change my action to come up with a different effect. This explains why I really suck at pool. Because <laughs> I also really suck at geometry. <laughs> I was thinking I would have liked geometry better in school if they'd had a pool table in there. <laughs> like that, that would be a great approach, I think. So a lot of people have found themselves during all of this COVID quarantining working puzzles. So what is the top thing you like about doing puzzles? And do you have a, a favorite type of puzzle that you like to do? Right now, I tend to do thousand piece puzzles. They'll take just enough time that it's like a challenge, but it's something that's attainable. And what I love about doing puzzles is, well, I love solving problems and puzzles are low stakes problems. <laughs> <laughs> My mind really enjoys being able to, you know, solve the problem of where does this piece go and what do I tackle next? And seeing something being created and come to fruition without it being, how do I solve the problem of real life concerns and the big world problems that sometimes weigh on us. And, and it's something that I can create in a sense, but there's no pressure on me to be creative. So it's different from writing because I don't have to come up with anything on my own. So I think it's a really nice break. We just talked about geometry. Do you feel like that helps you do puzzles? Because I struggle with doing puzzles too. And my son, who is way more spatially adept than I am, I can struggle with finding pieces and he'll come over in, in like point oh, two seconds, he's found that piece. So do you feel like there's a connection in the interest in geometry and your ability to do puzzles? For completing puzzles, I think the skill that might help me the most with that is my ability to recognize patterns, mm -hmm. which I remember that in math class a lot too. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that those are related functions in the brain though geospatial analysis maybe you've got a hole in your brain Carrie I know I think so <laughs> <laughs> and it affects my ability to play pool and do puzzles <laughs> there's worse holes you could have I there know I know <laughs> well Bobby it has been so interesting speaking with you I wanted to tell you I need to check out your audiobook because your voice is so soothing that I, I think it would be great to, to listen to you narrate your book yeah. thank you for taking time out of your Saturday to speak with us 
Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.